I love the way the First Gen Lounge makes me feel. Because it creates a space where I belong, where we're able to create community. The fact that it's a community. It's a safe place. It also gives me a place to understand different perspectives. The stories of these individuals prescribe transformational perspective. I receive encouragement, enlightenment, empowerment. And also serve as a catalyst to just keep going. Where we're able to be our true selves. I'm allowed to be an unapologetic first gen. And above all else, tell our story. And every episode is unique. I love it. I'm your host, Dr. Eve, and I'd like to welcome you to the First Gen Lounge. Hello, beautiful people. So glad that you are here today. I'm glad you're here every time that you show up because, you know, you're wonderful and you help make this space what it is. I am really excited today to have someone who I've met not too long ago through a mutual friend who I think we both adore. Shout out to Dr. L.T. Miles Reese. And so what uh, I have, not what, who I have today is I was like, what am I thinking about? It's Josh Ferris, who is just a dynamic man who is taking over education, education reform. He's going to tell you all the things that he does. So we're just going to jump into it and say, hey, Josh, what's up? Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be here. The I hope everyone can hear me and I'd like to make sure that everybody feels like they have a space in my experience as well, even if it is not necessarily the same. Oh, I love that. You know what? Just go ahead and tell us about yourself. Who is Josh? Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? What is your story? Yeah, so that's a very big question. So I'll try to address as many as I can before I forget. But yeah, so (laughs) (laughs) my name is Josh Garrett. I grew up in Southwest Virginia, very small rural town where we probably have more cows than people. And and also a town where you could be late to school and your excuse was you got stuck behind a tractor. I graduated from the University of Virginia in 2019. So not too long ago, although it feels like forever ago. And then I am currently in Buffalo, New York. I was working for an Upward Bound program. I'm an alumnus of the program. I went through it in high school and worked for it in college as well. And I, as of yesterday, announced my resignation. Hmm. So that's kind of where I'm at so far in a general story of life. So tell me, when you first got out of school, especially being first gen and again, being from a place with more cows and people, that is hilarious to me. Um, what was life like for you? Like, how were you able to figure out what was next or how to pick up the pieces and move forward? Like, what was the plan? Yeah, so I have always had a very tumultuous experience. I had a tumultuous experience getting into college, getting through college, and getting out of college. So when graduation came upon me, I had a lot going on at the time. I had just finished directing a conference for first-generation low-income students in college, and I was wrapping up the report, and it wouldn't finish till about April or May, and so by the time that came around, I had been doing so much of that and wrapping up classes that I did not have much time to really put forth in the job search effort. I knew I wanted to work with first-gen low-income students in some capacity, or at least so I thought. And so I was kind of pursuing that. And I thought a lot of the work I had done in college and my experience and in high school would qualify me to get these opportunities. Before I could even do that, though, my biggest hurdle was graduation. And so... Mm -hmm. 
going to a very elite university, there are a lot of things that they don't tell you when you identify as first generation low income. So for instance, that hotels book a year in advance for graduation. Mm -hmm. And they are very, very expensive. My family, I have a large family. I'm the oldest of five and I grew up with my mom and my stepdad. And they could not afford to do that. So I was trying to push for administration to cover their expenses to stay in the dorms. Because they did, they did offer that, but it was like $65 per person per night. So you add two nights for per person for five or six people. That kind of adds up. Yeah. And eventually they did cover it and they got there, but it was just kind of, this was a territory they were very unfamiliar with and they had limited mobility. So I spent a lot of my graduation taking care of them, making sure we could get from place to place. And it hit me, it hit me, it was an epiphany when I was standing in line to wait to walk the lawn for graduation. And you had all these people that were out on the corner having morning mimosas and breakfast and uh, celebrating their last moments together and then decorating each other's hats in line. And I realized I never had that. Mm -hmm. I spent all four years in college and I was so serious about my academics and achieving and, and growing myself that it was just a continual pattern both in high school and college that I never cultivated relationships that were social or consistent beyond a work basis or a project basis. And that kind of felt a little bit upsetting to me as I was walking and didn't have any events to go to after or any friends to see. Um, and so when I finished up, I still had my lease for a couple of months. So I stayed at my place locally in the city applying for jobs and I started traveling when I would get final interviews and I came upon quite a few issues with that. I would go to DC, I'd go to Boston, go to Philly, go to Lancaster and what would happen is I would get to these spaces and I would interview and somehow I would get stuck not having a place to sleep, miss flights or trains later, whatever, and I just didn't have the funds. So I would end up sleeping in the train station, the airport, just because I didn't have anywhere else to go. And mm. I remember vividly when I was in Boston specifically that I was it was cold and raining and I didn't want to go to the airport yet. So I was just walking around Cambridge and specifically outside of Harvard. And it was a Friday night. And I remember standing there and watching there was a bunch of these Harvard kids out on the town, whatever they do on Friday night going out. And there was this one building that had an arched or extended roof where it kind of provided shelter from the rain. And there were these mass of homeless people. I mean, up to 20, 25 people all sleeping in, in sleeping bags together right there with their food and all their belongings. And at, in this same space, there were these students who were literally stepping over these people as if they were not there hmm. and it's like you have two different lives in one space and neither acknowledges the other and it's kind of how I felt metaphorically because where I come from you know, I've had my family's been homeless uh, living in motels and shelters various times in my point including right at that time that's why I couldn't really go home there wasn't much of a space but at this, then I went to school with these same types of people, and this was just kind of the area I was inhabiting more and more of, of these types of people in my career and academic spaces. And so I just felt like this weird in-between. I just sat and watched them for a good bit, not knowing 
where my life was going, if I was going back into that situation, or if I was heading into more of the privileged economically situation that I've signed with the students walking around. And um, I, I, it did feel hurtful every time that this happened. I got stuck somewhere. I didn't have anywhere else to go. But I did. I was always enlightened a little bit because I would always run into or not run into people. People would come and ask me for help. Random strangers. Anywhere I go, this happened. Hmm. And for instance, in D.C. when I was there, I had this 17-year-old student come up to me in the airport or not, yeah, train station. I'm sorry. And he said, excuse me, sir. Do you know which platform goes to Baltimore? And, and he said, it's my first time riding a train and I don't know how this works. And I said, yeah, sure. And so I helped him find his terminal and we're sitting there because he had some time. And I was like, so you're 18 and, you, uh, and he said he was a senior. Well, what are you thinking about after high school? And he said, well, I, I'm actually leaving my family. I'm going to stay with my cousin and my aunts because it's just better for me there. But I thought maybe I could just go into the military. Well, are you, is your family part of the military or what's your kind of reason if you wanted to go? He said, well, actually, I don't want to do that, but I feel like it's my only option. I Hmm. wanted to be in biology and zoology, but my teacher said I'd never have the grades to make it. Hmm. I told him, I said, don't you listen to what your teacher or anyone else tells you. If you want to do something, it might not be easy, especially depending on grades might be, but it's not impossible either. And I'm sure you have plenty more options than the military. And they're just not the people telling you what your options are. And so... I gave him some materials and I gave him my phone number and sent him some other stuff to help with that. Uh, and then uh, another time I was on the train, I think this was to Philadelphia, yeah. And the train was packed and someone stole my seat. Mm. I'm trying to find another spot and this guy like just gets he's getting out of his way to get up out of his seat and help me find another spot. And his name was Josh. He sits down beside me and we start talking and he said he's on his way to DC. This is before I got to Philly, but he mm-hmm. said, you know, I'm a, I'm a painter. I've got, I got out of jail and I've got a felony charge. I can't get work. I've got a kid and no one will hire me on certain areas. And I can relate to that too, because my, my, I grew up with my dad in prison and still is. And so prison was kind of like a second home for me. When you're, when you're around it that young, you don't know what's going on. So that's just familiar to you. Mm-hmm. So I can really relate. And a lot of my family have are have been incarcerated. And so I know what it's like when they get out, they're not being able to find opportunities. And so I told them about Youth Build, an organization up in Northeast, and another organization that helped those that were formerly incarcerated get apprenticeships uh, through business training and then working in companies for a bit and working their way up there. So I got him his number and sent that to him. So it was just every opportunity or encounter I was having was reinvigorating me that there's just so much work to be done hmm. and so much inequality with these experiences, whether they're 17, 18-year-olds or they're 28, 30-year-olds and, and establishing their careers in some way. There are all these barriers to opportunity, and it was through my knowledge of what I'd cultivated myself that I was able to, I think, at least provide something for them for their next step. And so that was, I think... While I was struggling myself, it helped me put it into perspective that I can still help someone even if I don't have a job. Mm. I think titles are transitory. I think the only Mm -hmm. title you have is your name and what you do with it. And when I came back, my lease was up. I didn't really have anywhere to go. And so I somehow got connected to 
This woman who had a spare house, it was a, I call it a McMansion. I have never. (laughs) A McMansion. (laughs) I've never been in a space this big. And she was, had it on the market. And so she was just letting me stay there by myself in this Mm -hmm. house. It had like five, six bedrooms, had a guest room, had these balconies, had a courtyard. Wow. I just didn't know what to do. I was scared being by myself at night in this place. And I think the other part was it was she was just so cold too. It it was a it was a house, but it wasn't a home for me. And mm-hmm. she picked me up and immediately she's like, Okay, so what did you study? How long do you think you'll be here? What are you trying to get into? What do your parents do? And all these other things. Mm-hmm. So I stayed there for a couple of months while I was continuing job interviewing and doing a little bit of part-time work at the one of the career centers. And then she told me after I got back from Boston that she's like, I hope you found a job, smiley face. You know, I, I need you to be out. And oh wow. so I had to figure out the next option. So I stayed somewhere else where it was a little bit nicer for me, but it was just another roof that it, it was, I didn't feel very well integrated into the place I was at. So it just like another roof and not a home. Mm. In all of these things, what has kept you going? Like, what has been the motivation? Because you had so many doors to close in your face, just opportunities to fall apart, not having support. It's just been so so much. Why, why do you keep going? Well, this is the thing. I've grown up without money, but what's gotten me through a lot of my life and a lot of the challenges I and my family and the community have faced is this idea of purpose. I can't live mm-hmm. without a purpose. I cannot be functional if I don't have a purpose. And so my get up, when I was younger, the first time I was homeless, which was in a fifth grade, going into sixth grade, it was very, very quick actually too. And we were staying in motels and my, my younger siblings weren't, a lot of them were not old enough to understand what was going on. And so I would stay outside of school. But I remember when we finally got a place to stay after a few months that I was outside and I said, you know what? I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to, I want to be someone and I want to, I want to go to college. I want to get out. And the second goal I made for myself, I said, no matter what I do in life, I want to be in a position where I can create or allocate resources for disadvantaged populations, especially you. And so I just began working since then to develop and cultivate those opportunities to learn and have knowledge and resources, even if I didn't have money. At first, it was just an opportunity to make friends. So I would do a summer camp or a science course or upward bound and while I wouldn't necessarily get the friends stuck I just kept accruing knowledge and skills that would build on to each other as kind of like a unintended side effect and I realized as I went through my schooling and education that I had certain types of knowledge and resources that I could use to help people in a variety of ways and seeing that kind of output or that outcome where I could help someone find say or help someone get a job or uh, navigate unemployment or navigate how to register for college or get their grades improved in school and I mean it, it can be anything from people my age younger it could be people in their 40s 50s and 60s just helping them figure out their, their way in life or overcoming a barrier and so I kind of continued doing that in college as well where I would take the opportunity to get involved and apply my knowledge in the classroom outside of class because Mm. I was so frustrated. I think this is a big issue with education today 
is that no matter who you are, whether you come from a low-income background or you come from an affluent background, schools are set up in a way that you don't really, it kicks the curiosity out of you. You don't, mm. you're not self-directed, you're not, they don't teach you how to apply a lot of the knowledge you learn in school to your current situation, your current life. And I was so frustrated by that, that when I got into college, I made this list. I made two actually. So one was every time I finished my classes each semester, I had a document that I would just type without looking at notes what I thought at least one takeaway was from that class that I won't forget or that will benefit my current situation or my future. And I just kept adding on to that each semester after I finished my classes. The second one was I made a list of goals, things that I wanted to grow and learn from while I was in college. I would break it up. Okay, I want to try this class this semester. I want to study abroad and prepare for that this semester. And I want to improve my Spanish or I want to expose more to career. I want to lose some weight through some exercise classes. And so Hmm. always been about goals and it's always been about purpose and growth and progress. Um, And that's what's kind of kept me going is if I can feel like I can be me growing in some way. And when I feel stagnant and I lose, lose a sense of purpose through not being able to improve myself or help others, then that's where I don't become functional anymore. Hmm. So is that something that's really helped you to show up in the work that you do with first generation alumni networks? And can you tell us a little bit more about that work? Yeah. So a lot of that. So before I graduated, a lot of what I was trying to get done was helping first generation low income students while they're in college, because there are a lot of access programs, programs that help them get into college. But not all schools, universities equally have support systems for these students to help them not only survive, but thrive in college. After I graduate and a lot of the experiences I had struggling with this transition period that I realized a lot of people do as well. A lot of, even if you do graduate, so I think one of the most recent statistics, it's a little bit older, but if you're identified as both first gen and low income, the average graduation rate within six years is about 11%. And so if you think that 11% and then those that graduate, I hear all these stories of people that even graduate, whether it be bachelor's or master's, and then they can't find a job either in their field or even that requires a bachelor's degree. This issue of unemployment or underemployment is where if they get in these jobs, like at McDonald's or some other low-wage position, a lot of times they don't leave. They don't know how to get themselves out of that once that happens. So universities don't do a good job of, they get them to the degree mark if they do, but then they don't always necessarily help transition out so that they got on their own two feet afterwards. And so I was invited by a couple different opportunities to help with these alumni efforts. The first was at my university, getting together an alumni board to help steer direction and get together a coalition or network of first-gen low-income alumni from the University of Virginia. And so that's one kind of area I've been working on and then trying to get other universities that either have established ones or are trying to establish them, getting a coalition or network together. So we've, we've looked at Harvard's, MIT's, Georgetown. And a lot of them are affluent, but also some of the other ones are wanting to develop them. So we're trying to figure out how we can all collaborate. And then the second opportunity is with Ed Mobilizer. So I first became acquainted with them when I was doing Align, because Align is a conference where any person from student that wants to come from a public university can, and we I, we subsidize all the costs. I actually, my, that year when I was doing the conference, I raised seventy almost $70,000 so wow. that everything was taken care of. And so 
I, at Mobilizer, they're, they came first. They are the ones that do IVG, which are the same type of conference, but for Ivy League students, first-gen low-income students at Ivy schools. And so I got connected through, through that, and they started this new initiative called Next Frontier, where they built a national directory of first-gen low-income professionals that are willing to be champions or advocates in these spaces if other alumni or current students reach out to them for support in a variety of ways. Something I'm getting ready to try to spearhead, and I hope this can take off, is doing a digital narrative. So starting to reach out to first-gen low-income alum and asking them on video about their transition stories and Mm -hmm putting that together to, one, build awareness on what is the problem for first-gen low-income students transitioning, because there isn't much focus or literature in that. So there haven't been as many resources to cultivate that experience, as well as to help the organization raise more support for them specifically. So that's kind of where I'm at in terms of those two specific endeavors. I love that. So if you had anything to say to those who are first-gen college graduates about just what they should do when they graduate or just a few pointers for things that you think would help make their experience better, what would you suggest? What would you say to that? Yeah, so I think being resourceful, and I think that's a gift from our Mm -hmm. experiences that we have that a lot of other people our age do not have. I'll give you a quick story to try to give that example and that was I attended a an event that was focused on incarcerated individuals and getting opportunities afterwards and Mm -hmm. I met this guy was a panelist there and he just had an answer for everything he was just such an expert and I just fell in love with his work and I wanted to talk to him and the dean who was sponsoring the event introduced me walked me up to him and He said he worked at the law school and asked me a few questions and then sent him an email, sent him an email. He didn't respond. That's very typical of me when I send emails to people is they don't respond. So I wait a little bit. I sent another email, never responds. Then I got the dean who introduced us to send an email, never responded. So Hmm. it wasn't me. So I, I remembered, I said, oh, wait, wait, wait. He teaches at the law school. So I pulled up the class directory for the law school and I found the time and the day in the place he teaches so I took a bus ride up to the law school and I waited for about 45 minutes outside of his classroom realized that they weren't in there they guess it was canceled that day so I tried again the next week and he he came out of class after the hour was up and I said hey do you do you remember me (laughs) he said yeah 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 here hey here's my phone number how about let's let's have lunch on Monday and we'll we'll talk I'm like yeah and I'm very excited and I realized that spring break was happening for the students so the buses were not going to be running. I had a doctor's appointment that they like right before then. So what I did was on Sunday, the day before, I went to the doctor's office downtown and I timed myself walking to see how long it would take from getting hmm. downtown to the other part of the uh, other part of town because there was no transportation for me. And so it took about 45 minutes. And so I remembered that to know when I would leave. Well, the doctor's office comes the next day. And after the appointment, I hurried along to get there in 40 minutes. And I get there at this, I mean, it wasn't a like a five-star restaurant, but to me, that feels fancy. Yeah. And I come in there and I said, oh, I don't know if we have a reservation. And so they had a free table and I sit and I wait and I wait and I wait. Hmm. And I finally messaged and said, are we still meeting? And he said, oh, I forgot. Oh, man. So 
he did eventually connect with me, but it was like a 15 minute conversation. And he asked me like, what am I doing? What, what, what am I working as? And he just became disengaged kind of after that. But I say that to showcase that I, when one barrier popped up to me for getting to someone, I figured out another way around and I had to be very insistent on getting to someone. And sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't in terms of getting what you want or access to someone, but it's the quality, it's the resourcefulness that really does help in getting through a lot of barriers in higher ed, especially communicating or getting access to support from professors, from other faculty, or from certain supporting offices. It really can go a long way. Hmm. So I think that's one aspect. And then who is, I think one of the hardest things for us is really learning how to ask for help. Mm-hmm. We are so used to doing everything on our own. I mean, while I was in college, I was supporting my family a lot as well. And I was not used to someone offering it or even following through with support. So I just figured out how to do it by myself. But the I think the more you can share, not only that you would like support for something, but also that you, you do struggle in a way that people don't see on the outside. Absolutely. So I would say those two specifically. You've had so many powerful things to share with us today. And I've just been over here picking up all the, the pieces of it, dealing with the incarceration, the homelessness, the uncertainty, but still the, the drive to go on and do something greater in spite of what those challenges have been. And I just want to personally commend you for your resilience and for your ambition And then, you know, just to be very straight up, I think we can have very honest conversations, which, you know, we've met in a safe space for you to be a white male and for people to automatically look at you and to think privilege, you know, just by the fact of you being a white male, but to not know your story and to hear that you've been through so much that you've had to overcome so much to humanize what it means to be first gen across the board. That's what I'm really getting at because it's I I relate in so many ways. I took the train to my collegiate interviews or rather to go do my campus tours. That was my way of making it. And somebody from the school, you know, came to pick me up and they housed me and I had to figure out how to be fed. But for what it was worth, you know, here we are, two people from what would seem like completely different backgrounds and lives that were so much alike. And it's our first gen low income-ness <laughs> that has really helped bound us together. And you are helping to epitomize what it means to be first gen and to be connected across race and across gender and across, you know, institution types is just so powerful. So thank you for sharing your truth, um, your struggles, but also we can hear and to know about your success and that you still survive. So I'm completely just like, man, I love this. You know, you give me that feeling like this is why I do what I do. This is why we have the First Gen Lounge. This is why we have these conversations. This is why my work exists so that we can push each other forward. Goodness. So we are honestly at a point of a conversation where we're, you know, at the wrap up. And I've got to ask you that question. I ask everybody because I just I love this the most. If there's that one thought or one yes one thing, quote, phrase, movie line, whatever it may be, that you want to leave us with to hold on for the rest of our lives, what would that be? So I'm going to throw out two or three, one by me and then two by people I think are fine inspiring. And to answer your follow-up comment about 
this kind of divide across other types of identities. I think that's what's unique about first-gen low-income is that it is very intersectional and there's so many different types of identities within that cohort itself. And yes. But we, we thrive or we come together on this notion of that we are disempowered because we don't have the access, the educational capital or the financial capital towards opportunities. And so I think about, we always talk about this notion of poverty and it's this lacking of money, but I like to think of Mother Teresa's quote and she says that we think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry and naked and homeless, but the poverty of being unwanted and unloved and uncared for is a greater poverty. And hmm. that's, you know, the, the poverty or addressing it must start in our own homes. And I say that because there are so many times where, yeah, you can get used to not having money, but when you get used to not having love or no one to support you or a university or an employer making you feel like you don't belong for so long, it it's toxic. And so... Hmm. Remembering that even if we look different and whoever we are is that, and we can't provide that money. Like, I, you know, I'm struggling myself. I might never give you much money, but how can I show ways to, for, of care and love, or even if you're a stranger? And so I think that's important. And then another quote is, I, I love by Rosa Parks, is that knowing what must be done does away with fear. Mm. And that, you know, you think about her and the movement, she wasn't mobilizing grand armies, and but the power and leadership from her that started a movement was just from saying, no, I'm not doing this. And you think about leadership can be in those small moments where we just say, hey, I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm not going to do what someone wants me to or because they're holding money over me or some other material possession. I'm going to say, you know, I am who I am. And I'm going to take that step and I'm going to take that leap of faith. I'm going to do what I think is right for me. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say yes to something. And uh, I think the final piece I'll leave by is my own quote I've had since high school. I try to steer by is to lead others by following yourself and to always be the person who you wish someone was for you. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Be who you need it. Mm. That's so good. Josh, you are incredible, and I just wish you well in everything that you do that, you know, is ahead of you. I look forward to how you're going to shape the world through your leadership, through education reform, through just being who you are, the loving, outgoing, and very compassionate person that you are, because I've really gotten to know that about you and our interactions. And I'm just like, wow, this interview is really like, gosh, he's just great. He's so great. And for those of you who have heard his story and it resonates, please go connect with Josh. His information is in the show notes. Just open up the notes of the show literally and click the link to get to the notes into his LinkedIn, as well as you all are doing something with Ed Mobilize that I would like for you to tell everybody about because I'm a really big fan of it, which is the National Directory. Yeah, so it's a national directory, and you whether you're a first-gen low-income graduate or you're just an advocate but want to be supportive and give resources or mentorship, whatever you think you can for current students or other alumni, then you can register on the website, and uh, your profile comes up as a, an option for people to view. Absolutely, and I will link that in the show notes as well. So if you are first-gen low-income, first-gen and low-income or an ally, please do go and get up 
on that directory, I actually did have an opportunity to do some myself, really grateful for it. And I was like, oh man, this helps, you know, just being able to know other first gens who can tell their story as well, but especially thinking about me taking the more entrepreneurial path and continue to help support those who are interested in the, the path of entrepreneurship as a way of economic empowerment and just leaving a legacy. Because people don't talk to us enough as first gens about entrepreneurship. That's what I'm so convinced of. So we get stuck in thinking about our careers as the only option when there are so many options that we have. But we'll save that for another day. But again, Josh, thank you for everything. Wishing you again well and know that we here in the First Gen Lounge always have your back. Thanks, everyone. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to know that there's more support and more innovation being done in this space.